Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have an interesting show for you today, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll meet Professor William Irwin of the King's College Philosophy Department in Pennsylvania. He is a philosophy professor, a literary critic, and a heavy metal scholar. His new book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, takes a serious look at the lyrics of metal's biggest band, disentangling double meanings, explaining stories, uncovering sources, and illuminating themes such as hope, despair, rage, resilience, power, liberty, justice, love, death, and don't forget insanity. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Vancouver-based five-time Emmy-nominated songwriter and composer Daniel Ingram. His latest project is the kids' show Luna, Chip, and Inky, Adventure Rangers Go, which is available across Canada. We'll get to Daniel shortly. First, though, I wanted to spend some time with Gilbert Gottfried. As you probably already know, the legendary comedian passed away last month at the age of 67. I saw him perform just two weeks before he died, and while he looked frail, he delivered a show that was sweet, it was funny, it was also incredibly rude, sometimes all at once, and that was Gilbert's magic. There was no one quite like him, and no one as fearless as he was on stage, or as funny. This conversation dates from the release of the 2017 documentary, Gilbert. We talk about the beginnings of Gilbert Gottfried's stand-up career, why he doesn't want his kids to follow in his footsteps, and his legendary telling of The Aristocrats, the filthiest joke ever told in the weeks following 9-11, and how that brought laughter back to New York City. I just wanted to hear his voice again, and I hope you do too. Here's Gilbert Gottfried. You've been doing stand-up since you were 15 years old. Yes. And what pushed you towards that? I mean, we see this in the film, but tell people why you wanted, at 15, because I can't imagine, I'm a public person, I speak in front of people, I do that sort of thing. I can't imagine doing what you do, though, getting up on stage, and if it's not going well, my instinct would be to run. My instinct would be to get out of there as fast as possible. At 15... I'm not sure that I would have had the nerve to do it. What got you up there at 15? See, I I've, I always say this. It wasn't so much nerve as stupidity. <laughs> it, it's like, first of all, having that idea that, oh, I could have a career in show business. That's crazy. Because <laughs> uh, it, it, it's like... People say, you know, if your kids want to go into show business, what are you going to do? And it's like, I I think like... I could understand if they said, I want to reach into the trash can and take out soda cans <laughs> and turn them in for five cents each. Right. That at least makes some sense. Yeah. Show business doesn't. It, and it's like, but I was too stupid then to know the odds against making it. And I was too stupid to, you know, know that... If they're booing you and hissing, maybe it's time to get out. So I just kept doing it. And it's difficult for people that don't know. I don't think people realize that comics frequently aren't paid, that they're seeing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that they, there's a thing called bringer shows where you have to bring 10 people that oh, are all yeah. going to order two drinks and, you know, that sort of thing. And then maybe you'll get a spot at midnight at the end of the show. Yeah. There's all that sort of thing. Um, did you ever give out flyers on the street? Did you ever have to do uh, that sort of thing? No, that thing seemed like it came later on, right. the flyers on the street. I see that all the time in Times Square and the yeah. village and everything. Uh, but, yeah, no, I just remember, like, you'd 
Uh, we used to like wait on line outside of the improv to be the first to, you know, get an audition spot. Yeah. And uh, so we did that. And uh, yeah, and then you'll, there'll be like years of just waiting around the clubs where you don't get on at all. You're right. just there and you come back home at four in the morning <laughs> or some crazy hour. And, uh, yeah, and no money. Did you feel you were learning stuff, standing at the back of the club watching everybody? Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I mean, you learn more, obviously, when you're actually on there. Yeah. Uh, I guess you learn what not to do by watching other oh, people. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, I just remember that, like all those. Uh, and what, what scares me uh, when I think about it, you know, I'm like one of those people who's always going, oh, my career's nowhere, it's a mess, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then I always think of all those years at the clubs where there would be, it seemed like billions of people that I saw every single night, right. also hanging out all night, also trying to get on, and and I have no idea where they are, I don't remember their names. Do you think that you were just funnier than they were, or were you more patient, or what was it? God knows. Uh, <laughs> it's it's really. I I I guess you could always attribute uh, stuff to dumb luck. Yeah. You know, you could never underestimate that. You're listening to the late great Gilbert Gottfried on the Richard Krause Show. There's a scene in the documentary, and it's. At a at a, a charity function, and uh, a man has just made a speech about his daughter having cancer, and and it's a you know heartfelt sort of thing. And then you're the entertainment after this. Yeah. You are following uh, this thing. They're raising money for for children with cancer, and you get up, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and but you could see you kind of like rev up, and you gave your show. You did. Yeah. You didn't compromise. Yeah, and it was it was that was a. That must have been a tough one. I, I yeah, that was an extremely tough one because yeah, this this man got up on stage, did a speech about how his daughter wasn't feeling well. Then she was diagnosed with cancer. How he would drive her to the hospital and everything, and and it you know I remember being backstage and I, and thinking well I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna do my midget goes to a hooker joke and. <laughs> And and I am going to be driven out of town. I've been in enough trouble before. Yeah. Now, forget it. The Internet will explode. Sparks will be coming out of it. And I thought, this will finish me for good. And then I went on, and, and they were laughing. And uh, In the dock, it shows the man who had yes. just made this speech laughing, and he's sort of, he's, you can see the obvious joy on his face. Yeah. It, and that to me was like uh, a magical thing to watch. Yeah. That I was doing that. Like he he's, has like this horrible thing that he's facing. And for those few moments that I'm on, he looked like there was a joy. Is that why you do it or no? I do it so they hand me a check at the end of that night. <laughs> We were just talking about the aristocrats and how you told that joke, and it kind of it, it changed things a little yeah, bit afterwards. It, how did it change things? Well, it was it was just like a, <clears throat> a few days after September 11th that, 
And and it's like they were going to have the Hugh Hefner roast. At first, they thought they might cancel it altogether. And there were a lot of guests who were going to come to it that wouldn't fly, uh, you know, obviously. And uh, then they decided to have it anyway. And, And, like, the world was in shock when that happened. And particularly New York, mm-hmm. where the U. Hefneros was happening, because there was like black clouds floating overhead, and um, and so they were having it, and you could, and I and I thought, hey, I want to address the elephant in the room, <laughs> and and I want to do something that will, you know, <laughs> knock people off their seats, and you know, so I said. I have to leave early tonight. I have to catch a flight to California. I couldn't get a direct flight. We have to make a stop at the Empire State Building. And the audience starts booing and hissing and gasping. One guy yelled out too soon, which I thought meant I didn't take a long enough pause between the setup and punchline. <laughs> That's and, how a comic thinks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then I figured, ah, you know, I'd gone to this level of hell. Why not go to the very bottom level? <laughs> you know, say hello to Hitler down there. And uh, and then I go into the aristocrats joke, which is incest and bestiality. Yeah, just... And the audience starts cracking up and they're howling. They're, and... and uh, I, I remember there being reviews afterwards that some people were saying it was cathartic. Uh, and, and another person said, it's like I performed a mass tracheotomy <laughs> on the crowd. And, and it just showed, like, here were these people with this weight hanging over them. And, and now, all of a sudden, they're laughing and and they needed that release, yeah. you know. In tragic times, when you're facing tragedy, uh, you you need that kind of release. And that is the joke I think that got you uh, labeled by Entertainment Weekly out of the 101 comedians who appear on screen in The Aristocrats. No one is funnier or more disgusting than Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that to me is an that, honor. That's a legacy for your kids, right there. <laughs> no. And and uh, in the movie, your son Max says, uh, I think he's asked, "What does your dad do for a living?" He's a comedian. What does he do? He makes people laugh. Is he funny? Nope. Yeah. He's, he's, yes. yeah. And and one time he when he was in preschool, uh we we met with the teacher and the teacher says, Well, he doesn't pay attention in school and he's always trying to be funny. And I thought, Oh, I'm gonna have to beat him because <laughs> I don't know where he gets this behavior from. And uh then the teacher said, she asked him, she said, where did you learn how to be funny? And he said, from my daddy. And she goes, oh, your daddy's funny? And he goes, he's funny at home, not at work. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. That voice, that laugh, that was unmistakably Gilbert Gottfried, who passed away last month at the age of 67. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to meet Daniel Ingram, the Emmy-nominated composer whose latest project is the kids' show, Luna, Chip, and Inky, Adventure Rangers Go, which is available right now across Canada. First up, though, let's have a look at the lyrics of Metallica. Sleep with one eye open. 
Metallica's guitar riffs and pounding drums, well, they're legendary, but Professor William Irwin of the King's College Philosophy Department in Pennsylvania wants you to consider the lyrics. His new book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, takes a serious look at the lyrics of metal's biggest band and guitarist, singer, and songwriter James Hetfield as the ultimate poet of rage. Here to explain how Metallica's words match the intensity of their tunes is Professor William Irwin. You don't get to uh, write a book about Metallica and do the deep dive that you've done in this book without being a huge Metallica fan, I would guess. Anyway, so tell me about your first exposure to them and what it was that sort of put you on the road towards writing this book. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm a Metallica fan from way back in the day. I, I, I date my fandom back to 1984. Uh, my friend Joe and I were sort of Beavis and Butthead before there was Beavis and Butthead. Uh, <laughs> budding young, uh, goofy metalheads, fans of uh, Ozzy and Maiden and Priest and those kind of bands. And uh, uh, my friend Joe was a step ahead of me as he usually was and got a copy of Ride the Lightning, Metallica's second album, which was newly out and made a copy of it for me on uh, cassette tape, as we all, all did back in the day, and uh, played it, and, uh, and I was hooked and got my own uh, vinyl copy. And uh, really, I mean, Metallica was not only faster and heavier than anything I had heard before, but, but in a way deeper, too. The, the lyrics really spoke to me right off the bat. And would you have had an interest in philosophy at that point? You are now a professor of philosophy, but would you have had an interest in philosophy at that point or did that come later? Well, I, I think so without really not, without really knowing what to call it. Uh, I was in the middle of an existential crisis without knowing what an existential crisis was mm -hmm. as a, a young man, uh, teenager. I mean, I was goofy, but I was also morose and, uh, you know, sullen and, and everything else and pondering the meaning of it all and uh, that sort of thing. And, and, and so, yeah, the, the lyrics spoke to me as, as poetry, as therapy, as philosophy. It, it really uh, was a Swiss army knife of tools for me. And tell me, why is it, do you think, that heavy metal seems to be that kind of bomb for a lot of young men who are feeling kind of cut adrift, kind of lost? Uh, heavy metal music seems to be what they they gravitate towards. And I have a couple of ideas, but you throw them out to me and see uh, if we agree. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, it, it's nice in the sense, nice maybe isn't the word, uh, but it has this very macho, hyper-masculine feel. So I, I can be attracted to it uh, as a young guy and, and it validates uh, my emerging sense of what does it mean to be a guy or a man. And, and yet, uh, particularly in the lyrics of Metallica, there's some real vulnerability there, right? I can let go of my emotions, uh, anger, sadness, rage, all of that in a controlled way uh, that maybe other outlets aren't letting me do, right? So like mm -hmm. by 14, I'm, I'm not good enough at sports anymore to keep playing, right? And that was my outlet and I need something else. And, and this is what I find. 
I always thought that the sense of community that comes along with heavy metal is a huge part of it as well. And I found it interesting that you found out about Metallica because your friend made a cassette tape and handed it along. That's how communities are built, right? That's how the heavy metal community thrived and existed for years before the internet is you passed around handmade tapes of bands that uh, you know, were maybe on the fringes, but that's how they became popular. That's certainly one of the ways that Metallica became popular is the uh, the handmade tape that would uh, snake its way through the community of fans. Oh, that, that that's definitely right. The need to belong is, is so strong and so human. And and like I say, if I'm no longer belonging on a sports team, uh, you know, it's nice to belong to a group of fans uh, who bond over uh, something that, that really has this great emotional resonance to music. You're listening to Professor William Irwin on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, is available wherever you buy fine books. And this book is a, a personal book. This is your interpretation of the, the lyrics. You didn't interview James Hatfield. You didn't uh, talk to them. You are, are applying your own lens to the lyrics uh, and through your work as a, a professor of philosophy and as a longtime fan. Uh, tell me about taking that uh, position on this book. I know you've written a number of other books of philosophy about Seinfeld and that kind of thing, but tell me specifically about Metallica doing it that way. Yeah, uh, well, so just to be clear, I would have liked to have uh, interviewed James Hetfield, uh, the primary lyricist. Uh, <laughs> And I did reach out uh, and got a polite no. I was treated very respectfully and politely. Mm -hmm. But I understand uh, why artists uh, a lot of times don't want to uh, speak on the record about uh, about their work and let it speak for itself. And, and he's a private guy and plays it close to the best, that sort of thing. Uh, so I, as you uh, kindly mentioned, I have uh, a series of books that connect uh, elements of popular culture like uh, Seinfeld, The Simpsons, The Matrix to uh, philosophy. And I had actually done a previous book on Metallica and philosophy. And those are all group efforts. I've got, I got a team of philosophy professors who are all writing together. But th this is a, a very personal book, uh, which I've written all the way through. And I'm taking the lyrics seriously as rock poetry, uh, as one might with Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen, uh, that sort of thing. Th those folks have earned this sort of treatment. And Metallica and, and metal as a genre tends to be sort of uh, dismissed uh, and not seen as worthy of that. And, and so I'm, I'm uh, trying to give it a, a treatment that means a lot to me personally and, uh, and that does it some justice. I thought of as I was reading the book and, and knowing that this was uh, your interpretation of the songs, I thought of what Andy Warhol used to say when people would ask him, what's this painting all about or why the repetition? Why are there 50 soup cans in a row in this? And they'd say, what does it mean? And he would say, what does it mean to you? Yeah. And because as the artist, it didn't really matter to him what he thought about it. He knows that he can internalize that. But uh, he wants people to come to their own conclusions and, and create their own thoughts on this. And that's exactly what you've done here uh, in this book on Metallica's lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope I've, I've done it in a way that doesn't uh, grind axes or that is uh, so personal that somebody else couldn't find it uh, relatable. My, my goal was as a fan to write this being true to the text of the lyrics the way that someone would with, with poetry or a novel and... Mm -hmm. and uh, put it across in that way. 
why do you think it is? And I'm often surprised uh, when people will approach me because I've written a number of books about popular culture, uh, elements of popular culture as well. And people will come up and say, well, why don't you write about something important? Why don't you write about, uh, you know, Shakespeare? Why don't you write about Renaissance painting? Why don't you write about the important arts? And I, my response to that is always, well, popular culture is our culture. So that means that it's extremely important. It's the culture that we can touch every single day. And why do you think it is that the the lyrics of Metallica or uh, so often a lot of heavy metal doesn't get treated with the same kind of respect that perhaps Bob Dylan might or Leonard Cohen or any of the Joni Mitchell, any of the others that you just mentioned? Well, I mean, but some of it is generational, right? So, I mean, Bob Dylan just got the Nobel Prize a year or so okay. ago, right? It uh, caught up to him that way. Uh, and, and some of it is a kind of a snobbery, uh, I think, right? Uh, I mean, it's sort of ironic. I'm a, a college teacher, but the college boys, uh, you know, tended not to like uh, Metallica and, and it's seen as very blue collar and, and dumb. And so that there, there's a real obstacle uh, to overcome that way. That was Professor William Irwin of the philosophy department of Pennsylvania's King's College. Find his book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, wherever fine books are sold. And do you have young kids at home? If so, a new series might be just the thing you're looking for. Luna, Chip, and Inky Adventure Rangers Go is a new series for three to six-year-olds that's available free and commercial-free across Canada on the Knowledge Kids app and website. Within British Columbia, the series will also be available to watch on television on the Knowledge Network station. Set in the forests, mountains, lakes, and ocean near the fictional town of Eagle Creek, the series is inspired by the rugged, natural beauty of the Pacific West Coast. In each episode, the trio of enthusiastic helpers tackle problems in their town, but not before they experience some hilarious flops that require them to look for different ways of unlocking a solution. Creating the music for the series is my guest, Daniel Ingram. He's one of the top songwriters working in children's and family entertainment and has written songs for Emily Blunt, Zoe Saldana, Christian Chenoweth, and even Weird Al Yankovic. He's scored hundreds of episodes of television, and his most popular songs on YouTube have over 100 million online views with a cumulative catalog approaching 1 billion. That's billion with a B views. Here's a sample of Luna, Chip, and Inky Adventure Rangers Go. We beavers know all about building stuff. Have you ever tried to help, but it didn't go as planned? My tent looks different than the one in the picture. Untangling mistakes can be an adventure. Adventure Rangers Go! Luna, Chip, and Inky. Adventure Rangers Go! Coming soon, only on Knowledge Kids. Daniel Ingram joined me via Zoom from his home in Vancouver. Tell me, what do I need to know about Luna, Chip, and Inky, uh, the adventure rangers go, uh, that will make it appeal to my kids? Um, it is such a fun show. Uh, it's It's got a lot of great, like for, for this, this, I think there's things about it that really appeal to kids and really appeal to the parents as mm -hmm. well. So from the kids' side, uh, you have these three um, really fun lead characters. So, so Luna is an owl, Inky is, a, um, is an octopus, and Chip is a beaver. 
And they kind of like look after their town and all of the problems and that come up in their town. So they're always going off on new adventures to, you know, save the day basically. So there's a lot of really fun uh, situations that occur. And of course, um, you know, from my perspective as the songwriter is also a lot of great, uh, they always break into song every uh, episode and, uh, and those can be a lot of fun as well. Well, tell me a little bit about writing music for children, which is what you specialize in. So tell me, how is it different or is it different uh, than writing songs, writing pop songs or rock songs or whatever it might be? Is there a different approach that you take? Uh, definitely. The in, in some respects, a lot of the songs you write for kids will be pop or will be rock songs or they'll be influenced at least by those genres. Um, the only difference is, um, especially in context of television or film, you're telling a story a lot of times. So the song is, is helping to sort of propel the emotional message of that episode. So, you know, it might be someone's feeling kind of sad. And so they're singing a sad song and that helps communicate that feeling. Or they might just be like having a ton of fun and, and, and maybe playing some pranks or something silly. And so the, that helps boost the energy up. So a lot of my job is to look at the script, look at the story and say, okay, what does this song need to do to really uh, get from A to B in terms of the storytelling itself? I think when you're writing songs um, outside of the context of television and film, that's not such a concern necessarily. You know, the, the, the song stands on its own. Um, that being said, it's also really important to, for the song within the show to have a life of its own, to still be enjoyable on its own. And, and, and also to keep in mind a little bit of the age range you're, you're gearing to. So not all kids, uh, you know, kids, kids go through many sort of developmental stages. So some shows, the songs might need to be simplified if, if we're really shooting for like a, a two, three, four-year-old versus like a four to six-year-old or a six to nine or nine to 12, et cetera. So um, I think we kind of try to look at like, okay, what is our core kind of demographic age-wise? And then how can we expand the music to kind of encompass that plus reach a little higher usually or reach a little lower too. So that that's kind of my challenge is to see, you know, what is something that kids will ultimately identify with? And that won't drive parents crazy. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to composer Daniel Ingram on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new project, Luna, Chip, and Inky Adventure Rangers Go, available for free and commercial free across Canada on the Knowledge Kids app and website. That's, that's probably got to be top of mind because if kids like something, they will watch it 15,000 times. Absolutely. <laughs> I have a two and a half year old son and my goodness, like he is his... his capacity to watch the same thing he likes or listen to the same thing he likes it, it, it astonishes me uh, i mean i i'm like okay you've heard it a couple times that's enough it's no it's not enough it's never enough <laughs> has your approach to writing these songs changed since you've had a two and a half year old and you really understand how intense it can be having a kid who loves a movie or a show yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting because I had been writing songs in television uh, for kids really for about 15 years before yeah. I had my son. So um, the 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 sort of way that it's like and I was also writing a little bit for older, older kids, like a lot of my shows were kind of more geared six to mm -hmm. 12. And so and even like reaching young sort of teen, like with My Little Pony and some of the shows I've done. Um, prior to Luna Chip and Inky. And um, 
having like a two, like once I watching my son go through that sort of early stage of what is he like at six months? What is he like at one? What is he like at two? I've already seen that evolution and it's made me kind of realize, oh yeah, there has to be something in the song that's really simple that a young kid can grasp onto, but you can also have something in the song that reaches so that when they get a little more sophisticated, they can also uh, not feel like it's too young for them. So maybe it's like a really simple chorus or a really fun little chant or some some just like element to it that kind of can make, can appeal to both like a two-year-old and a six-year-old. That's That's kind of the art form. It's fairly specialized work though. How do you fall into, I don't know, fall in is probably not the right term, but how do you become involved in this? Yeah, oh no, that's a great question. I mean, it is a, a, a specific kind of skill set, I would say. Um, a lot of uh, composers who write for, who want to become like composers aren't necessarily thinking they want to work in film or television. And then when they are wanting to work in film and television, they aren't necessarily interested in working in children's, right? And then it's a lot of songwriters are really interested in doing pop or radio or something like even musical theater. They're not also think, they're not necessarily thinking they want to write for children. So to, to fall into both of those um, things uh, to, for me came out of um, being a trained composer working in like modern theater and um, getting a job as an apprentice to one of like three composers in Vancouver at that time who were writing for children's animation shows. And then in Vancouver where Knowledge Network is sort of our like main public broadcaster for, for children's content, um, uh, at least locally or locally created whatever uh, is you know, we suddenly saw a big boost in the amount of animation coming to BC and coming to Vancouver through some of the film and tax incentives, uh, credit, credit incentives and some of the great animation companies based here. Um, anyway, so so for me, yeah, I just suddenly there was this demand. They were like, wait, we need more people who can do this. And because I happened to be working for one of those one of those guys and he was, um, of, you know, I, I got thrown into it. And honestly, the first song I ever wrote was a theme song to a show that plays on Knowledge Network called Martha Speaks. And it's been, a, it's, you know, that show, show has been around now for a long time. Um, but they were like, hey, you know, you know, you're our composer, but want to take a crack at a song. <laughs> and I was like, I've never written a song in my life, but let's try this. And it was so much fun. And I just realized that aspect of it was such a was such a joy that um, I ended up now I've written, you know, well over 500 songs for children's television. You are listening to Daniel Ingram on The Richard Krause Show. He is the composer for a new show for kids called Luna, Chip, and Inky Adventure Rangers Go. It's available free and commercial free across Canada on the Knowledge Kids app and website. <laughs> Learning together can be an adventure. When we all work together, there's nothing we can't do. Luna, Chip, and Inky. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, the chant, and that seems to be something that is, in for my understanding and my ear, I hear that a lot in children's songs because, of course, it's it's fun, right? You get yeah. to sort of chant along and and sing along in a way that isn't quite singing. It's chanting. It's it's repetitive. It's it's it gets it. It's an earworm for little kids, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, not every child, I mean, not every human can can hear and sing well, you know, and hear pitch and do that well. So the chant can be one of those ways where like, hey, you know what, it doesn't matter how well you sing, you can join in on this song and not and not worry about it. Although I have to say one of the things I've really noticed with young kids is they don't care if they're good singers or not like they will sing because they love to sing yeah. they sing because they love a song you know a chant is a good way to kind of get in your head and 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 join in but uh you know of course the kids will sing along whether or not they can quite get the tune or not are there any particular challenges involved that are unique to luna chip and inky adventure rangers go uh absolutely i mean for one thing our first season here is 40 episodes mm. and that's, that's a are, lot of shows for a lot of shows. Yeah. Years. And so that's 40, 11 minute episodes. Every one of those episodes contains like a one to two minute song. So you can imagine now when you're in within one world writing 40 songs, you, you don't want them to sound all the same. Right. So one of the big challenges is like, Hey, how can we make each song unique and each song fun and special and memorable for this series? Um, and so that's that's where honestly a lot of the fun comes in is like okay what do we do now with this one and so uh you know there'll be an episode where they're trying to solve a mystery and like okay let's make the song kind of sherlock holmes mystery solving song or there'll be a song where they're imagining they're going to space so let's make it like cool sort of space you know david bowie yeah, or something yeah, yeah. Kind of song. so um that's that's one of the challenges that's also a real a real pleasure and you, I see here that it's not just children that you've written for. There's songs for Emily Blunt, so is Zeldana, Christian Chenoweth. But one name stuck out here I wanted to ask about, Weird Al Yankovic. What did you work on with Weird Al? Sure. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, wrote, I've written three songs that Will Weird Al performed uh, or, or sang on, I should say. He didn't perform live. And those were all because he was a guest character on My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Uh, Right. And I was a songwriter for 10 years on that show. And so, uh, yeah, he played a character called Cheese Sandwich. And uh, he was and, and the, the funny thing was I had to record him down in L.A. And his and the director really wanted to, you know, Weird Al kind of had to start doing accordion polka montage yeah. like like medleys right where yeah. he would take all these songs and make them on accordion and crazy medleys and so that was the first thing i did with him was we were like let's write an accordion polka medley for weird al you know and i'm like oh my god he's gonna either think like i'm a total hack you know because yeah. he's the master at this and now i'm trying to make a song <laughs> for him to do that he's already mastered that <laughs> That discipline. Anyways, it was he was such a, a great sport and he he had so much fun with it. And uh yeah, that's how it's so a lot of times these children's shows will have guest uh, guest actors on them. And that's where even like working with Zoe Saldana or Emily Blunt came came in. Like they were often guest characters on on an animated project. You're listening to Daniel Ingram on the Richard Krause show. He is the composer for a new show for kids called Luna Chip and Inky Adventure Rangers Go, available free and commercial free across Canada on the Knowledge Kids app and website. You mentioned something earlier that I meant to follow up on. You're saying that a lot of the songs that you write are a minute or a minute and a half long. Now, I know as a writer, 
who writes books and articles and things, it's way harder to write something short than it is to write something long. I, yeah. I could sit here and, and pound out 3000 words because it can be unorganized. and can be all over the place, but trying to say the same thing in 150 or 200 words is a much different trick. Mm -hmm. The same way with songwriting, it must be. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit different. Um, I, I totally understand, I think, from a writing perspective, why that that kind of condensed message can be harder. I think in, in a song, it's almost the opposite. The first minute is like the, really the first 10 seconds is almost the hardest part, because that's just like, where is this song going? Once you get like the train on the tracks and it starts heading in a direction, you know, now you your options become more limited. So as a song, a typical song is organized in sections, you know, now a lot of these rules are broken all the time, but you say you have an intro, a verse, a chorus, you know, let's just say in the most simple context. So if you have a two minute song, it might be intro, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, end, right? In a one minute song, you're like, okay, let's just do away with the repeated verse. We'll do away with the repeated chorus and let's just, we'll just have verse, chorus, end, yeah. right? So a lot of the Luna Chip and Inky songs are kind of like, the first half of this song, <laughs> you know, like they sound great. you got that, you get that whole, you get all the content, but the, it's actually easier now to just make it into a two minute song. So it, it, to answer your question, yes, it, it is harder in some respects um, relative to the amount of time the song lasts, right. but going from one to two to three minutes isn't, it's, it's really gets hard when you start going from like three to four minutes. That's where you're like, okay, now we're running out of repetitive content. We need some new stuff here. You know what I mean? Is there one song that you can think of, and it can come from, you know, history, from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or whatever, in of children's music that you think just works beautifully? I mean, in recent memory, like one of the songs we used for to audition a lot of our talent is How, How Far I'll Go from Moana by right. Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, it's just... Um, it's such a powerful song and it, sh it has like this, this big range where it's like, it's got long notes and, and sh lots of fast lyrics and it's got low content, low stuff and high stuff. Like it really covers this very dynamic range in the first minute. And I also know it just has, seems to have this real universal appeal. So my, like my son wa watches that how far I'll go video, like, like he's watched that a million times like we were saying like he just loves it and yet mostly he's not that interested in old, old kind of like that aged up children's mm -hmm. content but he he has gravitated to that so i do feel like that's a masterpiece um where it covers all ages you know um but there's just so many i mean of course like frozen let it go you know I, um from robert lopez and Kristen Kristen lopez like they're an amazing songwriting duo that song really changed the whole world of of what's expected kind of from, yes. you know, pop music and musical theater coming together for children and adults, you know, everybody could appeal to, uh, to, uh, to relate. So I think those are a couple in sort of recent memory, but, you know, going back to like the Sesame Street theme song, yeah. it's a fantastic theme song. So, I mean, there's been so much great children's music over the ages, you know, locally, I'm a big fan of Rafi and uh, Baby Beluga is his sort of hit hit classic children's song that's really withstood the ages. I mean, that's a 40 year old children's song. It's still just as popular today. <laughs> uh, so the, the cool thing about the genre is when you really do write a great kid's song and it really um, starts to relate, 
it'll be around for for decades that was david ingram on the richard krauss show he is the composer of luna chip and inky adventure rangers go available free and commercial free across canada on the knowledge kids app and website big thanks to daniel also a big thanks to professor william Irwin. find his book the meaning of metallica ride the lyrics wherever fine books are sold my biggest thanks as always though goes to you for listening i'm richard krauss Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.